So I figured out at the first service how to not get your slideshow to show up, so I'm gonna avoid doing that and have it for this one. Here we are. So it's great to be with you all this morning and to continue along in our uh, rebuild series. Um, and today we're going to be uh, studying chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to open in your Bibles or one of the Pew Bibles or on your phone to those chapters, that's where we'll be spending our morning. And the title for our message this morning is Fresh Commitment. So to begin our time together here in the book of Nehemiah, discussing fresh commitments, I want to spend time talking about one of the most common fresh commitments that people make each year, which begins at the beginning of the year when people set New Year's resolutions for themselves. Here, people set goals as to how they're going to better themselves and make how they live better throughout this new year that's coming up. We're far enough into 2022 that it's statistically likely that if you set a New Year's resolution, you failed in it already. Because studies show that 80% of people's resolutions fail by the time they reach the end of February. So don't beat yourself up if you failed. You're just like the rest of us. The question is, why do we fail as humans in our New Year's resolutions? Another study shows that the most common cause of failure in New Year's resolutions is people losing their lack of drive or commitment to that resolution and not viewing the resolution as important as they once did when they first set it on January 1st of that year. This is because people set some lofty goal often in their New Year's resolution. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to start running every day. I'm going to commit myself to achieving this by the end of this year. The problem is the fact that we set lofty goals because psychology shows that there's actually greater success had for people in making changes when they set systematic steps as opposed to setting just one lofty goal that they want to check off. So what do New Year's resolutions have to do with the fresh commitment with Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10? So far in our Rebuild series, we've been tracking along with the Israelite people as they have returned back to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. We have followed along as they have rebuilt the temple, as they have recommitted themselves to the law of God, and also how they had rebuilt the walls surrounding the city. But now it was time for the people to look forward in a fresh commitment. This morning in our story, though, we're going to see the leaders taking the people through systematic steps in their fresh commitment, not just going for some big lofty goal. With this systematic process, the Israelites were best setting themselves up to staying true to the fresh commitment that they were setting. So let us come together and pray as we observe the steps involved in the fresh commitment of the Israelites this morning. Will you join me in a word of prayer? God, we come before you this morning grateful that we have the freedom here in Canada to gather in this building to worship you. I pray for our hearts this morning as we observe the steps of the Israelites and their fresh commitment. Lord, would you speak to us through your word and by your spirit begin changing our hearts today as we see the ways that you have worked throughout 
history to bring people closer to you. We thank you and I pray that these truths that we study this morning would resonate with us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So our passage begins this morning with the first step of the fresh commitment for the Israelites, which was confession. This begins in verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read the book of the law, their Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter of the day in confession and worshiping the Lord, their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Here in this moment, the people of Israel are drawn together as a congregation to confess their sins before God. And this step of confession consisted of three actions that the people displayed. The first action is that the people fasted, fashioned themselves in sackcloth, and put dust on their heads. These three actions were meant to magnify the reality that the pleasures of this life, such as food, comfort, and cleanliness, are of no value if our lives are dominated by sin. It was showing that sin needed to be the most uncomfortable presence, the most uncomfortable reality in the lives of the Israelites. As I was prepping for this message, I was convicted of how little I could tolerate being dirty, how little I could tolerate, how little I could tolerate being itchy, or how little I could tolerate being hungry, but how so easily I will tolerate the presence of sin in my life. How often are we feeling uncomfortable and agitated by the presence of sin? I think that these actions of the Israelites were meant to magnify this reality. Magnify the reality that our physical well-being pales in comparison to the weight that is carried in our spiritual well-being. The Israelites needed to confess this before God. The Israelites also separated themselves from the foreigners. Interestingly, a prescription such as this had been made 13 years prior under the direction of Ezra. Obviously, people of the land had evaded carrying out the separation from the people around them. This separation from the people around them, separating from their idolatrous practices, was the highlight was to highlight the commitment that the people were committing themselves to before God. They were committing themselves to be a people set apart for him, no matter the cost that would carry. The people needed to realize that God wasn't speaking metaphorically when he said that he wanted a people set apart for himself. And so this separation from the surrounding nations, practices, and idolatrous ways needed to take place in this. And finally, the people commit themselves to reading the law. Not only would have the reading of the law been used to instruct the people as to how they were to live, but by observing the law, the people would see all the ways that they were transgressors of the law in their lives. 
In this, they would be drawn to confession before God for all the ways that they had fallen short of his commands. But the purpose of this confession is made clear in verse five. Confession is meant to draw us to worship. They say, stand up, praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. This is such a crazy thing about the Christian life as we now live it. Looking at our lives, looking at all the ways that we've fallen short in God's law, we are not invited to turn away, to turn our backs on God and run away, but instead invited to come into his presence, fall down before him in worship and rejoicing. In confession, the people were redirecting their focus to the things that were around them that they were so easily being pulled in by, to redirect their focus to looking up towards their God in heaven. This was the first step of, commission, of the fresh commitment of the people. By redirecting their focus to God in heaven, the Israelites transitioned themselves into the second step of their fresh commitment, which was recognition. It isn't just for arbitrary reasons that God deserved to be recognized by the people. In his position as creator of all things, he deserves praise not only from humans, but also from all the creatures on this earth and also all the multitudes of heaven worship you. Or in other words, all the angels worship him, as verse 6 states. All of creation stands as a testimony to God's character. However, God's most beloved creation, man and woman, chose rebellion instead of recognition of their creator. Despite all the shortcomings of humans throughout history, God decided that he would select a people, the Israelites, that would be his people, a group whose rebellion he would graciously endure. Verse 7 states this, You are the Lord God, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans and named him Abraham. He found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to him the descendants of the land. Isn't it crazy that despite humans' repeated disobedience, God would extend the opportunity such as this to Abraham? This is the good and righteous character of God who deserved, deserves our recognition and deserved the Israelites' recognition. We know, and this passage outlines, that the reasons for God to be recognized didn't stop with Abraham. Eventually, the Israelites would find themselves subject to slavery in Egypt. This enslavement, however, would simply serve as a testimony again to the faithfulness of God. As verse 9 begins, You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like stones into mighty waters. Have you ever noticed that three of the most magnificent displays of God's power accompany him freeing humans from captivity? He first showed it when he freed the Jews from Egyptian captivity, parting the sea before them for them to walk through. He again did it in the current context of this story when he had brought 
the Israelites back to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. And ultimately, he did it for all of mankind by the work of his son in which he freed each and every single one of us from sin's captivity. Romans 8, 1 to 2, make this clear. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Without Christ, there is no hope for us to be freed from our enslavement to sin. And without God, there was no hope for the Israelites to be freed from either of their enslavements in Egypt or in Babylon. In all this, God has displayed that he is above all things and deserves our focus, deserves our recognition. The leaders recognize this and exclaim in verse 10, you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Recognizing this name of God is deserved and was the second step of the fresh commitment of the Israelite people. Their next step would be a period of reflection in verses 16 to 31. In this section, the Israelite people would recall their history. Unfortunately, their history was not a history to be proud of because they would see that for 900 years from the time that they were freed from Egyptian captivity up until now, they had turned their backs on God as rebels. For 900 years, God had put up with their rebellion as they turned their backs on him over and over, and never once did he stop his pursuit after them. This reflection begins in verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in the rebellion appointed a leader to return them to their slavery. And so here in this moment begins the repeated pattern of the Jewish people in which they would enjoy the blessings of God that he would lavish upon them. They would turn their backs on him and continue to indulge themselves in the blessings that God had given them. They would eventually become rebellious against God and would lead themselves into captivity. And then they would cry out for God in deliverance, for deliverance in these hours of trial. And then they would go right back to the start and repeat this trial, the cycle over again. However, this pattern isn't specific to just the Israelites. It is a pattern that each and every single one of us in this room have partaken in within our lives. The very fact that we're sitting here this morning alive and breathing is testimony to the mercy of God despite our repeated rebellion. Because scripture is clear about what we deserve. Ephesians 2, 1-3 says, You are dead in your trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our trespasses, carrying out the passions of the flesh, by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind." 
I'm a child of wrath, not one that should deserve God's mercy, not one that should deserve his blessings. I should be dead because of my rebellion before God. No matter how hard we try by any sort to earn merit for ourselves, we always end up missing the perfect mark that God has set out for humans. Scripture is clear that to be a human, therefore, is to be a sinner. Nothing that we can do can help us escape this reality. Oh, but we will try to free ourselves from the condemnation that sin brings upon us. We conjure up one of many schemes to try to free ourselves and vindicate ourselves from the judgment that we rightfully deserve. In this, we're attempting to vindicate ourselves. Perhaps you try to vindicate yourself by scoffing at the sins of others. Sure, your life isn't perfect, but in comparison to the people around you, you're doing pretty good, and outwardly, you seem to have your life intact. That sounds a lot like the Pharisee who stood and prayed by himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, swindlers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I acquire. But the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This was all very convicting to me because I've seen myself fall into the shoes of the Pharisee often in my life. But maybe one of the other schemes we bring out to try to vindicate ourselves is exercising cheap grace. Thinking as long as I have Jesus, I'm free to do whatever I want because in him there's so much freedom and so much grace. Skipping around and cheering through life over the unimaginable excruciating death that Jesus Christ subjected himself to on my behalf and endured in addition to taking on the weight of the sins of this world on his shoulders on that cross. The invitation from Jesus isn't come, follow me comfortably. It's whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Instead, it is, you don't get to exercise your desires while you follow me. You lay those aside. Take up your cross, take on the suffering that I shared in, and come along on this journey as you follow the Son of God. Neither of these schemes will vindicate ourselves. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven of our sins, washed clean and f- saved. In attempting to vindicate ourselves, we rob God from the worship and recognition that he rightfully deserves as our Savior. This same attitude was seen in the Israelite people as they spent their time of ref- in reflection. The Israelites had wanted to praise themselves, not the God of Israel. They wanted to guide their own steps, not have their steps guided by God. Verses 26 to 31 display this attitude. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and they turned their backs on your law, and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven, and you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. 
But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard them from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. It's seen that the Israelites repeatedly turned away from God the Father in rebellion. Rightfully, God should have up and left them to be a people on their own, not journey alongside them. But in his compassion, he delivers them time after time. This compassion of God is crazy because it doesn't make any sense. We see these rebellious attitudes still present in our lives here today. They're a part of the human condition. And I think that we see this cycle play out often as people living in a privileged country of wealth. In dire times, you may hear people, whether spiritually, emotionally, or physically, crying out to God for deliverance in their hour of need. But sadly, our memories as humans tend to be quite short when we taste delivery from God. Because of our privilege, we soon find ourselves back into the period of comfort and cast aside our need to recognize God and rely on his providence. That is until we need him to intervene again. Or we get angry at God when he doesn't give us exactly what we want when we want it. We treat God like some sort of vending machine where we get to pick what sort of thing we want from him. See, the Israelite people are not just the people of past history. They are a living example of how stiff-necked and rebellious humans collectively are. And that includes you and I. No need for God, except for when we are in a pinch, thinking that God owes us the desires of our heart. This is why reflection was needed amongst the Israelite people to see drawn out before them the repeated disobedience and God's faithful response every single time. They needed to see that the blame rested only on their shoulders. Because not only had God shown that he wanted their allegiance in this fresh commitment, but he had proven that he absolutely deserved it in every single way. And so the Jews have seen in reliving their history that the blame rests on their shoulders. And now it was time for the next step in the process, which is submission. At this point in the passage, we see a transition from the people looking back to begin looking forward. What was the response going to be to all that God had done for his people? Verse 32 begins, Now therefore, our God, the great God mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, and down to verse 32, In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully, while we acted wickedly. The response in this needed to be submission. 
The Israelites' first mission is seen at the very start of that verse where it says, our God. Not a distant God, not a God of a foreign nation, but Israel's God, who had proven that they were his people. The great, mighty, and awesome God, who they were exclaiming held ownership over them as a people. It was a submission to God's authority. It was a submission to serve him in these new lands that they had returned to. And the Jewish people were also recognizing that while they had to return to the very fertile lands of Jerusalem, there was still a lot of uncertainty surrounding them as a nation, literally. You may remember Mark Hockley detailing a couple weeks ago how Jerusalem was surrounded on each side by enemy nations. The Jewish people knew that they had mounting pressure on them. In addition to this, they were also still subject to being a Persian province. And so while they had the freedom to dwell in their land and live as they chose, they still had financial obligations that they owed towards the Persians. This is why they exclaim in verses 36 to 38, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. I want you again to notice another attitude change that takes place amongst the people of Israel in this statement. It's shown when they say, because of our sins, to start verse 37. Here we see them taking ownership for the suffering that they were enduring. Because previously in the history of the Israelite people, a situation such as this would have resulted in the people grumbling against God, questioning his authority, questioning the plan that he had for them. Now, the Jewish people were submitting themselves to God's sovereignty, submitting themselves to God's plan. And this was their second act of submission. There was still a lot of uncertainty about what the future would hold for the Jewish people. But two things were clear to them. They needed to submit to God's authority and humbly trust in his sovereign plan that he had shown to them in their fresh commitment. This morning, I'm challenged by this idea of submission. Why would I be challenged by it? I'm challenged by it because so often in my life, I hardly ever want to submit. In evaluating my life, I see two circumstances play out very often in which I refuse submission to God. The first circumstance is refusing to listen to God and go through my life independently. This is what I resort to when life is good. Don't worry, God, I've got everything under control. You can step aside because I want to praise myself. I've got to where I am because I've made the right moves and worked hard. Leave me be, God, I've got this all under control. The second circumstance is when situations are not going in my favor. The only difference now in these situations is that I don't want to hold the blame. I don't want to be independent because this isn't my fault. This is God's fault. Why would he allow this to happen to me? 
Why should I have to suffer in this life? This is all so unfair, God. If you're really God, why don't you get this under control? Doesn't this sound so much like Israel throughout the Old Testament? Thinking through these circumstances, I couldn't help but contrast this to the ultimate example of submission. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who gave up his independent life in heaven to come to earth and experience imperfect life alongside us, giving up his position of worship and praise to be subject to the nature of this unpredictable world, submitting himself to living in the human form just like us, exchanging his crown in heaven to be fashioned with a crown of thorns here on earth. The Son of God, Jesus, who came with the knowledge knowing that things were not going to go well for him in this life. It is without a doubt that Jesus knew what awaited him at the end of it all. However, not even once would he allow himself to stray from the will of God and subjected himself to an immeasurable, unfathomable amount of suffering as he sacrificed himself and took on the judgment for sin on our behalf. See, the unfairest circumstance in all of history is when the perfect Son of God hung on that cross on Calvary for sins that he never committed. Jesus was the ultimate example of submission, and by his submission, he died to spare me, despite my stiff neck, rebellious, and grumbling attitudes. Just as God had proven that he deserved the Jewish people's recognition and submission, Jesus, by his submission to death on the cross, has shown that he deserves each of our submission today. And so the question is to this, what will our response be? And that leads right into our final section of this morning, which is mission. Now it was time for the Israelite people to make a response. And this is what Nehemiah chapter 10 details I'm going to spare myself from trying to pronounce all the names listed in verses 1 to 26. But these individuals were the leaders, the Levites, and the priests. And so as leaders as the people, they were attaching themselves to this document to say that they were going to lead according to it. And since they were the leaders, these commitments not only applied to themselves, but also to all the people that they oversaw. And so we see the leaders and the people attaching themselves to the covenant. This event of having the two parties attaching themselves created a source of accountability for both the leaders and the people of Israel. By association with the covenant, a standard was being set as to how they were supposed to live. And so if either the leaders or the people came short in upholding the covenant, they could be disciplined, or if they refused to be disciplined, they could be outcasted from the people. This accountability highlights an important characteristic of our condition as humans. We need accountability. You may hate rules, but you absolutely need them in your life. You may not be convinced that rules are good for you, but let me show you that humans do not function well with absolute authority to define what is right and what is wrong. For example, in the last hundred years, all of the totalitarian regimes that have walked this earth have consisted of people 
humans just like you trying to define in their own definition what is right and what is wrong. And atrocities have been committed as they've tried to do that. Humans are not good at defining this. And so accountability before God in a covenant such as this, who gives us moral standards, who properly defines what is right as wrong, right and wrong, is essential to our condition as humans. And this is why the leaders sign themselves onto this covenant to make a commitment before God, to commit themselves to being a part of God's mission. So verses 28 to 39 detail what were the components of this mission they were committing themselves to. I have summarized these for us this morning. It says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any other holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and cancel all debts. We will give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of our God. As it is written in the law, we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of our Lord each year first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. We will bring our firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God. We will bring a tithe to the, of our crops to the Levites. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. We will not neglect the house of our God. So laid out before the people in these commitments is the renewed mission before God, a new standard of life that they were recommitting themselves to in the city of Jerusalem as the Israelite people. In it, they were committing to living morally upright lives that followed the commands of God that had been laid out for them. They were committing to honoring God with their wealth and possessions, seeing that this is not their own. And they were committing to ensuring that God's temple and those that served in it were not neglected and well looked after. This mission was the final piece of the fresh commitment. It was where we could begin to see results from the fresh commitment process. And so the Israelites should be good to go because they've completed the five-step process of the fresh commitment. There should be no problems going forward from here, right? We know that that's not how it went because failure was coming by the people and it was coming soon. Because magnified to us is the reality that despite even our best intentions as mere humans, sin will grip our hearts. There was a need for something greater than obedience to the law. There was need for something greater than obedience to the steps of these fresh commitments because humans had repeatedly failed miserably at upkeeping the rules we were supposed to. God's mission was to remedy the division that sin had brought between us and him, to bring us back into his presence where we could feel him by us like a touch on our skin. 
this was all accomplished and fulfilled by the coming of Jesus Christ. All these steps of the process of no value if they aren't surrounding Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus Christ, the one that we have talked about throughout this morning, the one who gave up his comfortable life in heaven to come to this earth in human flesh just like us. Jesus Christ, the one who endured the consequences of sin present in this world despite never, ever sinning himself. Jesus Christ, the one who came with knowledge of the suffering that awaited him on this earth and counted each and every single one of us as valuable enough to die for. Jesus Christ, the one whose blood would be spilled on that cross on Calvary for the purposes of vindicating us by washing away the condemnation of sin that rested on our shoulders. Jesus Christ, the one who would rise from the dead, putting on full display that in his name and by the confession of him as Lord, there is opportunity for new life, for freedom from captivity of sin. Jesus Christ, the one who has invited each of us into a new life, into a fresh commitment found in him. All of our actions and commitments of this life on earth are in vain if they are not centered on Jesus Christ. In this, we need to confess our sins before him. We need to recognize Jesus as the Lord of our lives. We need to reflect on our disobedience to him and see the need for our submission before him. And finally, we need to offer up ourselves, our lives, to be a part of the mission, to be more like Jesus and to spread the knowledge of him throughout this earth. And so, in view of all this, we come to the table this morning with the bread and the cup. As peace is meant to remind us about everything that Jesus did to allow us to be made new in him, giving us a fresh commitment that will last forever. In taking it, we are acknowledging him as our savior, as the Lord of our lives. And so we first take this bread meant to represent the body of Jesus that was given for us. Jesus, we take this in remembrance of your body that was broken for us. And we also take this drink meant to represent the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of sins to wash it away and give us again opportunity for a fresh commitment that will last forever. We drink this in remembrance of the blood that you spilled to make us new again, Jesus. Will you join me as we pray in preparation for worship in light of all that Jesus has done for us. 
God, we come before you this morning having studied your word, studying fresh commitments, God. And may it pierce our hearts to the core to know that apart from you, Jesus, there's nothing that we can do in order to fashion ourselves as perfect, as worthy of you. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you made to cleanse us from the sin that had brought divide between us and you. We remember your death on that cross, the body that was broken, your blood that was shed to purchase each of us and give us opportunity for new life now and forevermore. And so as we come to a time of worship, may this be our focus to magnify you and give you the worship that you rightfully deserve in light of all that you have done for us. We commit this time of worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Could you stand as we